0: Well, I gave some thought about what would be the most helpful message to share with you this evening. And uh, I haven't uh, spoken at all to Wynne about preaching here today or, or what I might speak on. But uh, I can remember occasionally when I was uh, uh, a member here as, of this church as a youngster, sometimes uh, you get a visiting speaker, usually an American, it has to be said, uh, who you know, thought he could speak authoritatively about what was going on in the church, uh, having only heard a few things secondhand. And it's dangerous, isn't it? Uh, uh, apparently, forgetting Proverbs eighteen seventeen, the first one to plead his cause seems right, until his neighbour comes and examines him. When we hear things secondhand, we we know less than nothing, don't we? We only hear part of the, part of the truth. So I, I have no intention of attempting any of that. Um, there's a there's a culture in uh, American church. I thought it was I thought it was just the guys who came here, but then uh, I had an American come and uh, a visiting preacher come and preach in our church and spent the, like the first five or 10 minutes praising me about my godliness and how amazing I was as a pastor. I think, you barely know me. And you know, had sideways glances from, uh, for, from some of my members. <laughs> like, what's he on about? But it's just a cultural thing. That's what they do. They're, they're, the host church gets, uh, gets praised for the first five minutes and uh, that's the way it is. Don't take it seriously. I uh, have no intention of doing that for win, Uh, This morning, had an American. uh, Well, it's a guy called Bob Lethem who lives next door to where our church meets, and uh, he spent many years uh, preaching. Well, uh, lecturing in America, and I had a word with him because he was he was preaching in our church a a few months ago. I said, "Look, we really don't do that here." Oh, thank goodness! You know, please don't do that. So I was thinking up all the all the all all the. the weakest ways I could compliment him. So it was uh, just as a, a joke between the two of us, which um, he, he, he liked very much. It fits his dry sense of humor, you know. He it was Bob Lethem, the former world record holder for the youngest person, and then stopped there, and, uh, which, which he enjoyed very much. But, uh, but uh, I'd like to open to you uh, this evening First Timothy. Uh, First Timothy is a personal letter to Timothy as the title suggests, and is stated in the second verse, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. So it's a letter with one single addressee, the pastor of that church in Ephesus. But it's also written in the expectation that the rest of the church is going to be looking over his shoulder whilst he reads, or, or at least that it's going to be read out to the church as a whole. So if you're using the New King James, this won't help you very much, but if you look at the last line. Of the, uh, of the book, uh, the last line of chapter 6, uh, he finishes with the phrase, grace be with you all, amen. Uh, or grace be with you, amen. In, uh, in some of the newer versions, it is grace be with you all. And it's, uh, uh, it's their way of showing that the you there is plural. Uh, Paul is assuming that the whole church are listening in to this letter that he is writing to their pastor Um, Paul is giving Timothy his instructions, laying out what his job description is, what what his mission is specifically there at Ephesus. And part of that is because Paul's commanding him to do some unpopular things there in the church, which will be politically difficult for him. And so Paul is using this open letter to Timothy as a way to add Paul's apostolic authority to Timothy, as he leads in a way that is in line with the instructions that he has been given by an apostle of Jesus Christ, um, and uh, I, I don't think First Timothy is anyone's favourite book of the Bible. It can be tricky as we read through it, can't it? Uh, particularly if we read through it a little bit at a time. I think I think it makes it much harder. Uh, letters are helpful when and I think I think Hebrews is another letter like this. It makes much more sense if you read through it all in one ses- sitting. The context helps you it 's as you go through it slowly, bit by bit, that uh, some of those hard passages become much harder and uh, 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 Timothy is facing resistance from within the church, and uh, so paul is uh, is using this letter to help him out. The reason I want to look at 1 Timothy tonight is because we can use it as a kind of owner's manual for the church and uh, an instruction manual for, uh, for how, to, how to get the most out of your pastor, how to it's kind of uh, care and use instructions for, for your pastor. I, I, I plumped on this because 1 Timothy is a, a letter that I've, I've never preached through in my own church and uh, I think it might sound quite self-serving if I did. Uh, and so I thought this would be a good, good letter to look at um, and, and maybe to, to share some of the things uh, that I found from my experience of being a pastor that maybe uh, Wynne would never say himself uh, because he's too shy. And uh, it, yeah, it might sound self-serving. So uh, if, you've, uh, if you've ever bought yourself a new microwave, you will find in there some usage instructions. And uh, one of the things that are on there along, you know, lots of things, you know, do not do this, do not, do not dry your clothes in the microwave. That, that's in there, that's in there. Uh, fire risk. Uh, more concerningly, do not, do not dry your pets in the microwave. And you think, why idiot did that? Why would they ever have that on the usage instruction? Well, the answer is because someone did it and tried to sue them. Try to sue them for uh, for their dead dog, and uh, the manufa- the manufacturers hadn't explicitly told them not to cook their pets, and so what were they? How were they to know? And uh, so you know, some things have to be spelled out. I uh, d- Timothy, first Timothy, can be a difficult book because um, it's about the church. You know, when we're trying to encourage unity across denominational boundaries. You know, it's, it's never going to be taught. So you know, nobody's going to go through 1 Timothy bit by bit in your uni-Christian union. And it's got lots of tricky passages. Nobody relishes preaching the end of chapter 2. Um, uh, some bits can sound fussy, like a long list of rules, and seem rather peculiar to their culture. Hard to find the main theme. Um, but uh, contrary to some commentaries that you read on this, it is not a fussy list of rules about how to organise your church. Uh, Paul has no interest in uh, a pristine, perfect church that just sits there under museum glass and you invite everyone along to come and see how well-ordered this church is. Paul wants a healthy church in Ephesus for urgent missional reasons. Let me explain. Vandalism is wrong, isn't it? You know, it's, it's always a shame it's a waste when something gets vandalised. If you vandalized a helicopter, that would be a particular shame, wouldn't it? It's an expensive piece of kit. But if you were in the middle of a great natural disaster, and the only way to rescue lots of trapped people who were in danger for their lives was this helicopter, and the only helicopter you've got available is being vandalized, then that would be a terrible tragedy. And you'd be angry, wouldn't you? And you'd take every necessary action to stop them, repair it, get it in the air, and get it going and saving people. The gospel on display in the in the local church is that rescue vehicle. Forgive me for giving you a little overview of First Timothy. It may be that you know First Timothy really, really well, and all the stereotypes that I'm putting in here are not true of you. Maybe you've been using McShane's reading calendar uh, for, for 30 years, and you've You've read this over 60 times and you know it much better than I. Apologies, but forgive me as we have this little overview. 1 Timothy 3.14 tells you why he's writing this letter. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. It says house of God, but it doesn't mean in the building. It means as the family of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, So what he's saying is uh, the church is the place where, where truth is made visible in the world. Paul is desperate for the church to be repaired so that it would accurately display the truth about Jesus in what they teach and in how they live. For the same reasons that you would want that helicopter to be protected and repaired. The main way that God the Father is described in the early chapters or, uh, is as savior. Um, so, uh, so sorry. Uh, end of chapter three. Uh, the uh, the pillar and and uh, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The truth is what undergirds the church. The the, the, the and the, the church. The picture here is uh, uh, what holds up the roof. For everyone to see. So it can be seen for, for miles around. Uh, then have a look at this, uh, this last verse uh, that we sang about a moment ago. Uh, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Here's what godliness is, according to Paul. Uh, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirits, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the worlds, Received up in glory. Now, if you try to understand this as historical events in Jesus' life, it's very difficult to think. How does all this fit together? But what he's talking about is the things that are true of God in His character and nature, being perceived and understood in the world, being put on display. The church community is the place where the truth about God can be seen by the world beyond. It's what we say what we do, how we behave, how we love. And I think that's why the, the letter begins and ends by, with a comment about God's invisibility, which is an odd thing, isn't it? Kind of uh, coming up with uh, attributes to, to talk about uh, God. I mean, his invisibility. It's, not, it's hard to get excited about. I mean, we sang it, it, it invisible God only wise. But, um, but why, why mention that? Well, he's stressing the fact that We're to make the truth visible here in the church as the Father is invisible to the worlds. This is the place where they see the truth about him. Because God is the saviour of the worlds. Uh, So God the Father is described in the early chapters uh, over and over again as saviour. So have a look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of... Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Saviour, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Um, We read a moment ago, verse 14. uh, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I've picked the wrong verse there, haven't I? But uh, uh, the grace of. Oh, no. Carry on to verse 15. um, Uh, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners of whom I am chief. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. He's uh, urging people to pray for their leaders and for everyone else. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of God. Of the truth, and then two fifteen. You've got the strange word, a strange verse about uh, uh, women will be saved through childbearing. But the the this word saved, to be saved, is constantly coming up in this letter. Um, Four verse ten. Uh, to this end, we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. And then uh, his warnings to Timothy about himself. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So it is, it is salvation that this letter is all about. It is the great rescue mission of the world that the church is uh, to play a crucial role in. It is also about hope. Hope comes up over and over again. It's there in the, uh, the opening lines uh, of the greeting. Uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Now, hope defines what someone is living for and relying on. It keeps coming up through the letter. Um, you know, you contrast the genuinely needy widow who trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers with those who prefer just to go on welfare, uh, uh, on, on church welfare People who live for pleasure and so are dead even while they live. Or check out his instructions to the rich in chapter 6, verse 17. Not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. The theme is hope. What are you hoping for at the end of it? What are you relying on uh, once this life is done? And this is important for Timothy because, as you read through the letter, he doesn't seem to be having a brilliant time of it. He's not—you know—he's—he's uh, he's not having enormous fun ministering there. He needs encouragement. Uh, Paul keeps inter- encouraging him to be uh, bold. To—to to, uh, in the second letter to. Uh, uh endure suffering and if he keeps having to tell him to do this probably means that he's not you know he's not likely to you know he's he's finding it difficult to do it if i if i tell if i'm telling one of my daughters you know not to pick their nose it's probably because they're doing it isn't it and and i think the same goes here Uh, paul uh, paul sorry paul is having to give timothy encouragement. Urging him to be bold and to get on with the mission he was sent there for. More than once, Paul calls Timothy's ministry a fight. So, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, This uh, this charge I commit to you, uh, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Then he mentions two people that Paul had to excommunicate. So the fight in this context is actually, actually with, with people who had previously been part of the church. It's a shock, isn't it? I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd be very, very pleased if I wasn't in the ministry. Someone talk, talking about uh, uh, my, my pastor's ministry as being a fight Uh, But he does it again at the end of the book, uh, chapter 6, verses uh, 11 and 12. But you, man of God, and man of God uh, is uh, uh, an idiom specifically meaning preacher, you, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And if Timothy is faithful, actually he will suffer more in the the short term. His difficulties will increase. And Paul's command to him is, do what's right anyway. Do what's right anyway. Alistair Begg advises new ministers uh, to say to their church, preferably in their induction service, I will always be your servant, but I must never allow you to be my master. Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus, uh, and the Lord had used Timothy to found the church there. And uh, he had been its pastor for the first three years of its life, and uh, he'd visited since. And uh, let, let, let me read to you a, a few. Uh, verses from his uh, his leaving speech, you you may be familiar with it, from Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Look, it's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? Paul has just been pastoring this church for three years, presumably all or most of these elders that are there in the church, are once they, he was involved in appointing in the first place. And yet he says, look, some of you are going to drift. And uh, you're, going to, you're going to distort the truth. And uh, also you're going to appoint other people, people who are going to come in from the outside, who are actually, they're going to be wolves and they will do damage. Paul wrote to Timothy as he was dealing with the, the Ephesian church, uh, where some of the elders had started to lead the Church of Jesus Christ astray. And it's, it's an inevitable thing, isn't it, given, given time? You know, they, uh, they, they command you not to, uh, not, not to text whilst you're driving, don't they? And even if it's a l- nice, long, straight road, you, you definitely shouldn't text while you're driving, should you? Do you know why? Because even if it's a nice, long, straight road, as soon as you look away from the truth of where the road is, you will drift, unconsciously. You won't mean to do it. You know, you, when you smash into the car coming the other way, it's, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to do it, and that doesn't help, does it? You drifted, you drifted, and disaster comes. And so the truth that's got to keep on renewing our minds is God's word. This is, the, this is where we see life as it really is. This is where we get that light to our path, that lamp for our feet, that shows us what life is really like. So let's have a little think. What is Timothy's mission? Have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes Rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Timothy is emphatically commanded by Paul to stay. He's got a mission to do, and it's not done yet. And that suggests that, but the fact that he's being told publicly to stay suggests that there's some people that would rather like it if he left. Maybe Timothy is one of them. I rather suspect that he was. But he had a job to do, and it wasn't done yet. Paul doesn't describe the false teaching in detail, but he mentions it in a few places. And it, uh, uh, first of all, we've got uh, here verse four, um, you know, these uh, fables and endless genealogies. He mentions the law, so it appears to be something to do with um, a mis- misunderstanding aspects of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, and just this week, actually, as I was studying First Timothy again, it, uh, it reminded I realized that some of the things that the false teachers were obsessed with were actually things that were true of Paul uh, and not of Tim- or, or not, as far as we know of Timothy. I mean, uh, Paul would have been able to trace his genealogy back to Abraham. You know, he, he would have known all the lists and all the way down, uh, incredibly thoroughly Jewish uh, in a way that Timothy, son of a Gentile, couldn't. Uh, Paul was an expert in the Old Testament law. He'd grown up under it, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, he could out Pharisee. Fa- fa- he could out Pharisee the best of the Pharisees, um, and uh, and Timothy was not from that background entirely. Um, maybe these uh, people uh, think it's more godly to, uh, you know, apply more and more of the Old Testament law. You know, celebrate the new moon festivals. Uh, build your own chapel according to the design of the Old Testament temple and call it a sanctuary. I, I, I don't know what, it, what they're into. Uh, some of the bits of uh, teaching, it's hard to see how they fit together. Possibly there are several factions or they're just, they're just wrong in some unusual ways. I don't know. They, if you look at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 3, uh, we've got, they're quite asc- ascetic. So um, uh, verse 3, they're forbidding people to marry. And commanding them to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Um, but if uh, you come across those sorts of people that, uh, that, that always think that godliness is about all the things that you don't do? <laughs> um, you know, uh, those that don't drink, smoke or chew or befriend those that do. And then someone else comes along and says, ah, oh, yeah, really, is that all you don't do? Well, I, I don't dance either. And somebody else comes along, "Oh well, I, I never smile on a Sunday, you know, or uh, somebody else comes along and they've got, uh, they've got s- uh, something else that they don't do. Um, I had a friend that uh, went off to, to uni and uh, uh, it was a girl and met a boy, thought he must be really godly because he didn't even have a TV in his room. And you think, oh, is that what godliness is? Uh, well, I'm so holy that I keep kosher and halal just to make sure, you know, cover all the bases. I met someone uh, a couple of weeks ago who, uh, you know, doesn't eat pork for religious reasons. Have you not read Acts? Have you not read, you know, Galatians, Colossians, quite a lot of it. Um, anyway, uh, they. Uh, what does Paul call that approach to godliness? Just a long list of things. I, you, you have more and more, you know, you more and more self denial, more and more harsh treatment of the body. Well. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of, de- doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisies, having their own conscience seared with, an, uh, with a hot iron. So, you know, he's not exactly on the fence about it. Prosperity Gospel in chapter 6. Have a look at verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and doesn't consent to the, whole, the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which, some, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. And he goes on to talk about the wealthy, but do you see that godliness being a means of financial gain. If you stick, turn on the God channel, you'll find that, that such teaching is alive and well today. And when you get this context in your mind of the false teaching that Timothy is battling against there in Ephesus, uh, some of the trickier passages make more sense. If you think that godliness is a means to financial gain and you're a lot richer than some of your elders, then of course you can't take seriously what they say to you if they, if they, uh, if they rebuke you for something or correct you because your bank account tells you what the score is. You're way more godly than they are. And of course you, you're going to put that on display, you know, you, to say, look, don't challenge me. God approves of me. You can, you can tell it by my designer clothes, by my gold jewellery. My bling tells you not to mess with me. God is rather pleased with me, much more so than you in your, uh, uh, your second-hand stuff from the charity shop. Uh, you can see that God is not so pleased with you. And, uh, uh, and, and you get that still today, don't you, in uh, prosperity churches today. Uh, you, they have the, the really sharp uh, cars and expensive clothes and jewellery to wear to church because that is how you show Your godliness, which then explains chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, doesn't it? Um, Where he, he says to them, look, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness, with good works. He's correcting an abuse. And, uh, and if false teachers are also forbidding marriage uh, and therefore forbidding people from having a family, it explains why there are some young widows in chapter 5 who'd prefer to go on church welfare rather than get married or get a job. And it explains chapter 2, verse 11 as well. Um, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. This word silence, it's, uh, it's the same as the word quiet earlier on, where rather than you know, campaigning or taking up arms against the government, we're to live quiet and peaceable lives. It doesn't mean absolute silence. It means uh, submission and getting on with people. Uh, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, you will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. He's saying, look, look get married, and in the normal course of things, have a family. Stop you know, being busybodies as you had been and uh, refusing to listen to instruction from your church leaders because you think you are more godly because you've got more cash in the bank. Now, as we look at uh, these false teachers, the the thing that gives us real pause particularly in chapter 1 is you see that they are using the bible uh, have a look at verse 7 um, they are desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor the things which they, are, uh, they affirm so but that is actually what they desire that's what they're working from but they're twisting it they thought they were being sincere but they have not guarded their hearts so their teaching has become meaningless, verse 6, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Idle talk, meaningless, pointless, pointless chats. This is a serious warning to all of us who are preachers, isn't it? And all of those who are Bible study leaders, all of us, all of those who read the Bible to our kids or anyone else. So Timothy's mission, then, is uh, uh, chapter 1 to refute the false teachers and Get back online with the gospel, which we'll mention in a moment. Uh, secondly, to pro- uh, chapter 2, to prioritise prayer and the spiritual discipline of submission. Uh, so this uh, uh, prayer is to be urged because God desires all men to be saved. So we're not to be you know, constantly campaigning. Uh, our, our aim is not, uh, first and foremost, uh, social change. We're not some lobbying organisation. We are an evangelistic enterprise. We are to declare the good news about Jesus uh, and to pray for people that they would be saved. Chapter three, to tighten up their selection criteria for elders and deacons. Uh, chapter four, to watch himself because pastors need uh, mentoring too. Uh, it's interesting what he says, you know, let, let people see your progress. Uh, there's no pretense here that Timothy is perfect he's got his flaws some of them are hinted at in the letter Uh, some of them are are kept quiet but all preachers are fallible all preachers are sinners we're just sinners with an open Bible in front of us and the best preachers are sinners who are good at pointing out what the scripture says and living in obedience to it but we're still sinners I could sit here to... uh, uh, I, could, I could stand here and list some of the faults of Jonathan Edwards and uh, John Wesley, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, George Whitfield. but what would be the points? They're all far better men than I am. And men who, sinners who God mightily used. Uh, We're saying, we sang, Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who would stand? And the same is true of pr- pastors uh, if, if the congregation marks their transgressions, they won't have anyone in the ministry. All are flawed. People, if if uh, people are to see Timothy's progress, it means they've seen his faults to begin with and see as he overcomes them as time goes on. Timothy is to watch himself and his doctrine. He's then to straighten out the relationships within the church. Have a look at chapter 5 for a moment. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as sisters, with all purity. Now, here's his attitude to them treat your whole church community as family. Look, I've, I've never been a member here whilst Wynne has been pastor, but I, I hope and I pray that he, he considers you family and he prays for you earnestly and he visits you as often as he can and he treats you as family. But I tell you, it's only people you love who have the power to hurt you, isn't it? And the more you love them, uh, the more they have the power to harm you if uh, If someone says to me, "Look, I hate you and I never want to see you again well if it's, if it's someone I've met, never met who's just you know it's a comment on social media or something you so <laughs> you know don't care, I wasn't going to see you anyway uh, if it's um, If it's a good friend, actually that 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 wounds, doesn't it that's if it was Catherine or one of my children, it would be devastating. I mean, it may never recover from that. Well, pastors are called to love their church and treat them as family. To open their homes, to be hospitable to them. That means to love, love strangers, welcome them in. And, uh, and, and the danger is in pastoral ministry that uh, you, we must be prodigal with our love we must be indiscriminate with our love and uh, some people that you you know well and you've prayed over them for years and you've led their children to the Lord and you saved their marriage in a couple of cases uh humanly speaking and uh you you nursed their mum on their deathbed and you prayed with them and you took their funeral and then Suddenly, your church isn't meeting their needs in quite the way they, they think they should anymore. And a relationship that you thought was like family, and from your point of view, it was, uh, to their point is, is a little bit like if um, you know, you've been a loyal customer of Tesco for years and then Lidl opens up slightly closer and uh, you discover, actually, from their point of view, it's just entirely a consumer relationship and they, they, uh, they, they ghost the church. Please don't do that. Recognise that... The rest of your church, just as you want it to be a loving community to you, they need you to play your part in being, in it being a loving community to them. And don't for a moment think that I'm saying it's not. I'm just pointing out what I see, just telling you some of what I've experienced. And uh, in, But the danger is, you know, lots of people don't want to be past it. Uh, you know, we, we complain about... Um, about echo chambers in culture, don't we? People choosing the news that spins things in a way that agrees with them already. And so they, they like that. So they, they choose that. They prefer it. And it, it means that they end up knowing less and less about the world, particularly those that disagree with them. And, but you discover that actually Christians do that as well with their churches. We'll choose a church that's most like us anyway. And, and in theory, we think that, you know, correct uh, a pastor who fearlessly teaches God's word, corrects, rebukes, exhorts with all long suffering is great because we want our neighbours to get at both barrels so that they are brought up in godliness. But as soon as he criticises me, I think, oh, well, I, I can't stay here then. You disagree with me. I've got to go rather than humbly bringing it before the church because pastors get things wrong too, bringing it to the elders or bringing it to the church and submitting to God's people and the Holy Spirit working through them. Straighten out the relationships within the church, says Paul. Chapter 5, and don't let it be unnecessarily burdened so that it can help people who really are in need. And the end of chapter 5, he is to uh, manage the elders. There are some elders who need to be confronted and rebuked. There are some elders who are working hard and doing what's right, and he needs to protect them from malicious accusations and make sure that they are being uh, supplied what they need, making sure they're, they're getting paid um, uh, and they don't need to worry about that. Uh, and uh, the end of the chapter has uh, something on, uh, you know, not rushing into laying on hands, you know, uh, um, you know, waiting and not sharing in the sins of others. And here in the middle of all this stuff on dealing with elders, you get this funny verse. Chapter 5, verse 23 No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. It's an odd verse, isn't it? It's a particularly odd verse to stick in the middle of a section on confronting difficult elders. And there's uh, uh, an older, more experienced pastor than I who is convinced that, this, that Timothy was suffering with stress induced IBS or something similar, that this is for the sake of his nerves. Have a little wine because you're constantly ill and you just need to, you still need to have these difficult conversations nonetheless. It's odd that this verse otherwise isn't in chapter 4 when it's on self-care. And then we have the rich, in chapter 6, he's dealing with the rich, and then Timothy's hope. But before he does all this, he homes in on the gospel in chapter 1. This is the bedrock for everything we are to be. The bedrock for loving our church family as a uh, uh, the, the bedrock for humbly listening to God's word, the, the bedrock for uh, serving and prayerfully um, uh, making sure the church is this rescue, uh, rescue vehicle that uh, people from all nations might come and be saved. He deals with uh, the wrong use of the law. What's, what's the law for? Well, it says the... Uh, um, uh, verse 8... Chapter 1, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. And then he's got this long list of sinners. Actually, the greater and greater adherence to the law is not what makes you godly, he's saying. That's not the way to greater maturity and wisdom. Actually, if you're successful, you'll feel proud. If you're unsuccessful, You'll feel crushed and unworthy. What is the way to godliness? Well, have a look at uh, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he's counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I attained mercy because I did it ignorantly, and in unbelief. Notice the, the, the note he keeps hitting. What a muppet I was. How foolish. I got so much wrong. I was, I was actually persecuting God's church. This, this, this one rescue vehicle for the world. That, do you know that the vandal was me? I was the one doing it. But God has been merciful to me, he says. Verse uh, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I went to a friend's funeral a few weeks ago, a man called Colin. I met him in, uh, in hospital. He became a Christian Uh, just under two years before he died. And uh, he, he had lived as a heroin addict for 30 years. And he'd been a dealer for some of that. And he had slowly lost his mind. He was in a psychiatric ward. But there, in a psychiatric ward, a man had befriended him, who was a bipolar patient. And he was having a manic episode, a very lengthy one. And he really was... Crazy. He'd been. Um, he wasn't safe. He was doing bizarre things out in the community, and people were afraid for his safety and had sectioned him. Was, but uh, uh, for all his uh, brain chemistry disorder, he really loves the Lord, and uh, he was patient and prayerful, and befriending the other patients and looking after them and praying for them, and trying best he could. To share the gospel he he really was mad and so some of it was coming out rather garbled he was getting a lot of things wrong but it was such a privilege to go and visit that ward and to have him introduce me to these guys that he'd been praying for and witnessing to and some of them would take me aside and say look uh this guy he, he he said a couple of things that i don't think really make sense so can i just check with you seeing as you're you're a chaplain and uh say, "Oh no 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 okay yeah that that bit's right that bit's not no <laughs> that's right but uh, this man, Colin, he, he was so impressed with this friend. Weak and confused though he was, that he desperately wanted what this other man had. I'm trying desperately not to mention his name. I was chatting to Alistair this morning and the name slipped out, but this is being recorded so I definitely can't mention his name. Um, he desperately wanted what his friend had. And he told me, when I get out... I'm going to try really hard to get off the heroin and to stay off it, to clean up my life, to try and be a Christian. I had the privilege of explaining to him, look, that's, well, we went to Mark 2, saying, look, it's, uh, it, Jesus is like a doctor. You know, he's, he's not come for healthy people, but for sick people. Can you imagine a doctor saying, look, you know, try and get yourself well, and if you do get well, then you're welcome to come for an appointment. It'd be stupid, wouldn't it? It'd be absurd. Or a, a lifeguard that says, I'm not interested in you losers who are drowning out in the sea, the ocean. I don't want to talk to any of you lot. If you make it back to the beach, we can be mates. We can, have, we can, have, uh, we can share a Coke and that'll all be great. But no, no, no. You drowning people, you know, sort yourselves out. Could point out Jesus came to save sinners. He came for the people that have shipwrecked their lives. The people who are drowning, the people who are making a mess of it—that's who he came for. The more we pretend that we're not in their number, the more we say, "I don't need Jesus. Jesus, stay out of my life." He came to save sinners, and there is something beautiful about the way Paul points it. Uh, Paul puts it here, isn't it, to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. Now, you know, we can look at his record. He's been gallivanting around the Mediterranean for years at this point, planting churches wherever he can. He stood up to kings and emperors by this point. And he just preached the gospel to them. You know, just amazing, standing before Agrippa and, and the others. Uh, and he gives an altar call. You know, I wish that you were as I am, apart from the chains. You know, come, be a Christian. It's much better than what you've got. In your robes and your official state positions, and yet, with all this success, with all this, uh, with all these people saved through Paul's preaching, that's not what he stands on. He doesn't wave that in under anyone's nose. He's a sinner, a violent man, a persecutor, a blasphemer. He's saying, that's, that's who I was when God found me. Everything else is grace. That's, that's who I was when God loved me and called me. The only thing that's changed me, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's all I am. All I am is Christ. Everything else is just the muck that I mixed in and get, get things wrong. He's saying, look, the proper use of the law is to convict people of their sin so that you can then show them the glory of God's grace to sinners in Christ. Paul had been a very devout Jew. He'd done all that, but he was blaspheming because he taught people that God hated Christians and anyone not keeping the law. Whereas the truth, in fact, oh, look at his love. For this reason I obtained mercy. That in me, verse 16, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all long suffering, as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Look, there's, uh, you, we've got uh, a ladder up to uh, the loft in our garage at home and it's rather wobbly these days. It's all bent out of shape and uh, sometimes the girls are nervous using it to go up and get things down from the loft until they see me all 17 stone of me going up on the ladder, and they say, okay, well, maybe it's strong enough for me after all. And that's the point here, isn't it? We can look at the gospel, and there's a friend of mine a few months ago who said, look, I believe it's true, but I can't believe it'll save me. Uh, She said that under a conviction for a serious crime, but we looked at what the Bible says about Jesus. As we see what the Bible has to say about Jesus... His character, his mercy, his grace. And we see people like Paul, who played a part in a public lynching. Yeah, it's grace enough for him. It's grace enough for you. Look, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what, what makes you feel guilty and keeps you up at night. So I don't know what doesn't make you feel guilty and should and you're self-righteous about I, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's between you and God's. But the gospel's enough for you. And the gospel's the only thing you have. We come with our sin. Nothing else, nothing else we bring to the bargain, to the, to the equation, to the deal. Everything else is God's grace. And what grace? He loves you. He calls you into relationship with Himself. He's adopted you. He's raised you up to sit with Him. At, Uh, at, at God's right hands, to reign with him forever, to have the world that he will make new so that he can make an example of you publicly. Look, watch as I lavish grace on this sinner. Watch, you heavenly realms, how soundly you've been defeated as I lavish my grace on this community of sinners and as they love one another and as they serve one another and as they patiently endure correction from one another and as they search the scriptures together and grow in grace so that Christ puts his image on us so that the world can see the glory his glory coming even from the likes of sinners like us verse 17 now to the king eternal immortal invisible to God who is alone wise. Not, none of us, definitely not. To him alone be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would always be our plea. O- only that we are Christ's. Only that he has shed his blood for us. Heavenly Father, as we come to the the commemoration of his great sacrifice. Lord, we pray that these things would, would ring so true in us. We'd, uh, we'd be powerfully reminded of them. Lord, we pray that we would never look down our noses at fellow Christians, Lord, or, or even at sinners in the world. Lord, we, we pray that we'd see there but for the grace of God go we. Lord, we'd remember what enemies, what hell-bound sinners we were when you found us and loved us and saved us. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would delight in your grace more and more each day. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.